This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy. Hi, everyone. I have the pleasure of introducing Veronica Olazabal today. She is the Senior Advisor and Director of Measurement or Evaluation and Organizational Performance for the Rockefeller Foundation. And I'm really thrilled to have you on today, Veronica, to share about the work at the Rockefeller Foundation and what you're about and what you're working on and just some of the things and challenges you're facing right now. So I really appreciate your time. And maybe you can start us off there. Like, who is the Rockefeller Foundation and what is it that you guys do for those that are listening who may not be familiar with your work? Great. Well, thank you for having me today, Tracy. I'm really excited to share. Uh, The Rockefeller Foundation, you're right, um, has the word Rockefeller in it. And so uh, many people assume that we're we're tied to many Rockefeller things. Um, And one one of which is true, which is we were founded by the original John D. Rockefeller back in 1913. And our mission since then, which uh, has been unchanged, is to promote the well-being of humanity throughout the world. And so today, we work uh, to advance the new frontiers in science, data, policy, and innovation to solve big, uh, global, hairy challenges out there, uh, very much focused on two things. The first is on ending energy poverty. And the second thing, which is uh, top of mind for many of us, is responding to the pandemic. I can go on and share many stories uh, about uh, the Rockefeller Foundation being amongst the, the first and largest at some point philanthropies in the world. Uh, today, we are primarily focused on uh, giving grants. And so not to be confused with Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors or Rockefeller University. Uh, and we are very much focused on thinking about utilizing all our assets. So thinking about innovative finance and how we can use that to catalyze the types of change we want to see. So when you talk about innovating finance, or I think you said also ending energy poverty, did I hear you correctly? You did. What does that mean? Like for those that aren't familiar with what energy poverty is, like what does that mean in the context of Rockefeller Foundation or just in general for individuals to understand some of the references you're making? Sure. So if you can imagine a large part of our economy and part of the drivers for how productivity uh, is generated these days is driven by our access to electrification. Mm. And and what would be surprised, uh, what you would be surprised to know is that a large part of the world is still not connected to the grid or do not have access to this type of electrification. You can imagine like rural communities in Asia, for example, and parts of Africa. And so we very much believe that uh, being able to show up in today's economy is, uh, is situated within being able to access energy. And so our new initiative, of, I would say it's not new in that we've been working on this issue of rural electrification, but most recently we realized that this was really key and core Uh, and that it wasn't one of the five vertical programs that we did, but rather it was one of the two. 
uh, and we want to be very mission focused. Uh, and so within that portfolio, there's different elements to it. Some of it uh, intersects with agriculture, for example. Some of it intersects with uh, our, you, our response to COVID as another example. Uh, but the umbrella is uh, ending energy poverty in order for us to be able to meet our mission of improving the well-being of humanity. So it really is electrification in terms of access to energy or light, or it, could it also include like internet access, for instance, or like anything related to electricity? Is that the best way for people to understand electri- electrification, but also energy poverty as it relates to electrification? Yes, and a key tenant of that being that without that very basic uh, access, uh, we, and we've all heard about some of uh, this, the studies out there that have been shown that, you know, uh, education outcomes are tied to being able to access a certain amount of light. What we also know is that productivity is very tied to this, this story. And so a community can't reach uh, beyond a certain level of economic development, for example, if they aren't able to plug in their appliances because they can't store produce or products or, um, and provide the services to be able to get that multiplier effect. So it's not just a story about access, it's really a story about high quality productivity. Which I think is really key because that's something that people can relate to even if they aren't aware of other countries or other people's circumstances outside of let's say US, but even I can relate to um, circumstances where it's like access to electrification And it's like, like you mentioned, like the things that we take for granted oftentimes is like our refrigerator and storing produce, right? And storing food so it doesn't spoil over a certain number of days. Like not everyone around the world has access to refrigeration systems because you may not have the means by which you can plug a refrigerator into um, electricity, right? So the reason I was asking is so that people can have a better reference to some of the more, um, uh, how do I say, topical conversations that are going on that not necessarily everyone is aware of in terms of like the the world as a whole. And the other thing that I think was really interesting is you're talking about the virus and also innovation. So what are some of those, um, what is the way in which Rockefeller Foundation is addressing the pandemic and the perspective on the virus? Is it access to vaccines where not everyone, you know, has access to vaccination? For instance, I was talking to individuals in South Africa where um, the vaccine is not readily available to, um, you know, frontline workers. Unlike here in the U.S., we've said, like, we are going to prioritize access to first responders, for instance, or our seniors, right? But it's acknowledging that there are certain parts of the world that don't, don't even have access to the vaccine, period, right? Um, so I'm wondering what that looks like for the Rockefeller Foundation in terms of the virus or the um, vaccine, and then a little bit where you talked about kind of innovation. Sure. So, um, so let me start with, let's, let's, let's rewind back to last year when uh, we, you know, realized we were, uh, we, we were in a pandemic. And uh, what we prioritized at that time was access to tests, because we clearly couldn't get ahead of of what our response should be without actually knowing what how large the problem was. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, um, our focus was primarily on testing. Uh, and at some point we were advocating for 
for testing as many as 30 million. We really thought that we really needed to reach a threshold. I think in March and April, we were talking about 30 million by October. Um, since then, uh, we as a country have gotten a little bit uh, stronger on the testing piece. And now really the topic is vaccines. Uh, who's getting the vaccines? What are perceptions of, of who is willing to take the vaccine and not? Um, I wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that in many of the um, low-income communities where the, um, the prevalence of, of COVID is pretty high, uh, there is a little bit of a sense of mistrust around vaccines. Mm -hmm. And so we started very much focusing on unpacking why that is mm -hmm. uh, and really thinking about utilizing not just our, I often say, welcome to the Rockefeller Foundation, you've been given a giant megaphone, right? Because really, <laughs> you know, really, um, our ability to influence and convene those who might not otherwise be coming together is really what our superpower is. Uh, and our assets really help out in that. But really, if we're looking for large scale, we're really thinking about that influence piece. Mm -hmm. And so really thinking, um, lending our resourcing to be able to highlight and unpack what are some of the barriers and challenges for marginalized communities to be either accessing the vaccine or uh, whether it's levels of mistrust, whether it's misinformation, whatever that is. Uh, and so that's one piece to it. The other piece that we've been focusing on is contact tracing. And so you've heard the stories and the studies and the conversations about how people are not picking up the phones, how when they are picking up the phones, they're not necessarily being um, overly transparent around who they've been in contact with for many reasons. There's a lot of reasons why that is. It's a hard conversation. So, you know, we, we have a really interesting project in Baltimore uh, called the Baltimore um, Health Corps, where um, we're combining the level of mistrust that a community might have with the challenges that uh, contact tracing brings along with the fact that uh, many of our communities in uh, uh, where there's a, a predominant uh, number of people of color there um, have been very much disenfranchised and marginalized because they've lost their jobs, because they um, have not had access to the types of resources that other communities have. So we've, we've basically taken those three pieces and put them together. So in our Baltimore Health uh, Core project, we're training uh, people that have recently become unemployed, usually people of color um, uh, of, of lower wages and others to be the contact tracers uh, for their community. And so therefore problem solving for uh, the mistrust piece, problem solving for some of the economic development challenges and also building pipeline in terms of once the pandemic is over, you know, how do we build back better? Hopefully there'll be a new uh, group of people that are able to act, have access to all of these skills that can now be more employable than they were before. So that's just one example of how we're bringing all those pieces together. But I love how you're highlighting also your work here in the U.S., aside from what you're doing abroad, because I think that you have a huge mandate, so to speak. And I love that you mentioned the mega uh, megaphone because that influence or sphere of influence is very much global in nature and isn't just only overseas or in the US, but it's all, it's all over, right? And I think the other piece that I appreciate you mentioning is contact tracing and the vaccine is also a consideration of all people here, even in the US, because some people, regardless of economic background, have concerns about whether or not they'll take the vaccine or not and what information is real or fake or just 
just the whole education process around like, and our own, I think biases are, are fears too, right? So it's, you're actually solving a, what I consider a world problem on all levels because of all of us encountering the um, contact tracing issue and the testing issue and the vaccine issue um, across all different demographics, all different social economics. And even more, as you highlight, there's ideas that you've been giving me as I'm sitting here too, of thinking about here on the West Coast where um, we're facing similar issues, but maybe haven't come up with as much or as clear solutions as let's say you guys are mentioning on the East Coast too. So, I mean, there's so many dimensions to what you're describing and just curious in terms of the data, because that's your kind of piece as it relates to evaluation. What are you seeing is coming out? Like, are you guys constantly measuring the feedback related to the concerns and the biases, the fears? How are you capturing that? How are you highlighting that? Sure. So, uh, you know, that that's a really good segue into, you know, what it is that I do for the Rockefeller Foundation. So you mentioned uh, my my overall role. It's definitely a mouthful. Uh, and, you know, when we think about philanthropy writ large, um, you know, we presume that mission oriented organizations must be collecting data, must be measuring their results and must be really effective at doing what it is that they do. Uh, in the philanthropic space, as you know, we are not necessarily required to do any of the above. Mm -hmm. So if you work for government, uh, measurement evaluation goes hand in hand with compliance, with accountability, with transparency, particularly because they are uh, implementing work based on our tax dollars. So they're required by law to report to stakeholders like ourselves and citizens. In the, in the private sector, uh, you have shareholders, you have board members, you have many other types of checks and balances that are aimed to hold private sector accountable. In the world of philanthropy, we don't have those same requirements and so those same mandates. And it's up to every each and every individual philanthropy to put a stake in the ground and to say, these are our guardrails this is how we're gonna hold ourselves accountable. And so your question about uh, stakeholders, for example, um, our, so when we think about our investments, we think we, we spend a lot of time thinking about the design phase and being strategic about how we're going to utilize these, these resources that have been entrusted to us for 107 years. Mm -hmm. And while we at some point were the largest uh, philanthropy, we were the first philanthropy in the US um, we were also larger than our, our federal government when we were first born. And that's because John D. Rockefeller was the wealthiest man in the world at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, there are many things that we have learned along the way um, through our, our more than a century worth of history. And one of those things is um, it's quite important to be uh, really specific about what you're going to invest in because today we are not number one anymore. We're I think number 17. And um, there's much uh, larger and bigger actors out there. Um, and we also know that all the philanthropy in the world is only 5% of government finance. Mm -hmm. So we have to be super strategic in order to be able to do all the things that we would like to do. And I often call them, you know, back to our superpowers our superpowers around amplification, around convening, being seen as a neutral player, i.e. back to our COVID testing um, over the last year before, um, before, uh, before the election, 
Uh, we spent a good amount of time bringing people from policy to science to frontline workers together around a testing action plan in order to try to expedite the design and development and the rollout of different solutions. And it was the ability to bring together those very different and distinct voices to a common place um, that really positioned uh, the, the testing, our testing and action plan work to be influential for the, the recent, I mean, the new government and our recent Biden-Harris administration. Um, but it was really thinking about what do we do when we can't go to places? What do we do when we don't have all the resources, nor do we all, no one has all the solutions. So those are still true today. And so within that back, with that background, um, what I do then is I spend, um, myself and many others, spend a good amount of time thinking about uh, two things. One is what is our institutional um, organizational effectiveness plan? Like how do we as a company hold ourselves to Hannibal and who uh, to our board, for example, how do we demonstrate progress? And I usually call that the horizontal. That's my horizontal role. Then in addition to that, my colleagues and I spend a good amount of time working, um, being the phone a friend, being the technical advisor to our verticals, uh, our two verticals now being the pandemic and uh, um, ending energy poverty, to be able to equip them um, with the strategic and measurement uh, and what we call in philanthropy land learning um, toolkit, skill sets to ensure that they are generating the type of data that they need to generate at the right time in service to decision-making. Uh, and that feels like it's a no-brainer, like everyone would do that, but in a world where you're, you're actually an investor, like that is what we are. We invest via grants, we invest via impact investments. Um, we need to be really structured at the front end because once the resourcing gets out into the world, we, it's further from our uh, locus of control, so to speak. Okay. Uh, and so um, we spend a good amount of time setting it up. But I'm I think, like, yeah, but I think what you're highlighting are like often some of the conversations and even more recent conversations around corporate governance. And like you said, regardless of what type of legal entity, right, or what form uh, or an organization takes, they're grappling the same with the same challenges and trying to come up with the similar solutions and they don't know how, but I love how you highlighted both kind of the vertical and the horizontal role that you play by which evaluation can address not only the organizational effectiveness component, but also the strategy and the decision-making, right? Like in an environment like today, there's two things that I usually like to say organizations face. There's capacity restraints, right? Resource uh, resources are limited. How do I stretch my resources farther? Or how do I increase my resources, which is cash, right? Cash is king. Like, how do I, how do I increase that? And the other piece is, how do I best make decisions around resource allocation? And those two things run rampant across all types of organization, nonprofit, for-profit, academic institution, government. It doesn't matter who or what you talk to resource constraints and increasing resource capacity as well as figuring out where my current resources should go in terms of resource allocation are literally every leader, every manager, every um, person's top of mind today, right? And what I think, what I appreciate is highlighting you guys as a organization and as a leader with a long history have been learning from that history and very well could share that with the 
rest of the world as a toolkit and as some of the best practices as all these different segments or industries or leaders all face the similar questions across for-profit, non-profit, it doesn't matter. It's really same problems, same issues. Um, who's got some solutions and how do we collaborate to find those solutions? So I appreciate you sharing what your role has been and how you guys have approached it. Because as I'm sitting here and as I imagine a lot of individuals that are listening, they're like, how can we hear what you're doing? How can we um, better understand um, and help, I think, fuel um, kind of that mandate and also that leadership that you guys as an organization have right now and maybe uh, lend to that uh, megaphone? Yeah, no, certainly. And I would say I would say that uh, one of the uh, one of the things that we've learned over the last 107 years, um, and that we're continuously iterating on, is this idea of how do you scale impact? And so many of us um, in the social uh, sector, in the mission-oriented um, set of work, you know, we're we're usually very focused on problem solving and figuring out the solution so that we can replicate and scale it. And it usually translates into um, a success metric around dollars leverage. Mm -hmm. How many dollars can we crowdsource into a particular space? Uh, and sometimes I think in, in the world that we're living in today, we get distracted with just that. And there's this presumption that if um, that more money coming into a particular space is either because there's certainly demand for investment, there is proof that uh, that a concept, for example, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, other investors will will say, oh, well, they're investing, therefore somebody must know the efficacy of whatever we're investing in. Um, and then the third piece is uh, because of confidence in who mm -hmm. you are, right? Trust. Uh, and, uh, and I think that what we've observed is that we really want to transition that conversation around scaling investments mm -hmm. to scaling impact. Like, how do we start to think about a world where we're scaling in service to the right solutions? Mm -hmm. And so part of our mandate around measurement and evaluation is not necessarily to demonstrate that our one micro project was good and that yep. it showed good results. And not, uh, I would say that, you know, the bigger issue or the bigger advantage to uh, a measurement and evaluation approach is not to demonstrate what works, but to demonstrate what's not working. Exactly. Right? And to, to highlight what those risks are, because we're really thinking at a micro level. And as we start to think bigger picture. More on the macro sure, level. Yep. Right. We're just going to amplify the, the and magnify the risks. Mm -hmm. um, involved, right? Uh, and that's not good for anyone. Like if you're trying to crowd in resourcing, yeah, demonstrating uh, that something is good without really thinking about the, the sophistication of really the problem set um, isn't a good uh, confidence maker, I would say. Mm -hmm. So we've really been thinking about how do we think about the micro level piece and the macro level piece. So thinking about, for example, um, customer feedback. In the private sector, when you think about your customers, you know, I would say customers are king. Uh, feedback is really critical. And in this day and age with social media, dialogical feedback is really important. Companies that are that demonstrate um, that they prioritize uh, customer feedback and that they they uh, they converse with them online. We were just talking about that earlier. Those are the brands that people want to invest in. They, those are the brands that people feel um, that they um, that will drive like, increases in products and services. 
Uh, well, similarly, in the philanthropic space and in the social sector, our customers are, are people that live in communities. But we very rarely actually ask them, you know, what they think about our plans or how things are going. Uh, and we've become really intentional through various different projects that we've piloted, but then also streamlined into our data collection processes that we equip ourselves to go directly to the stakeholder, the mm -hmm. uh, the end user, this is our UX strategy, uh, and ask people, you know, how are things like, did you get services? And if you did, were they good? And, you know, did it change your, your well-being in any way? Uh, and even if we were to get a really low response rate with a number that said, yes, things are better, we'd at least have a data point versus designing and structuring these very large and expensive um, academic and experimental designs um, in which we probably wouldn't really be able to answer a question for a number of years. We don't live in a time when we have a number of years. And so being able to um, prioritize customer feedback has been um, a, a game changer for us. And I would say the other game changer for us is being able to leverage uh, a data science and really mm -hmm. thinking about the new frontier in terms of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And both, I would say, the good and the bad of it. You know, as an evaluator, um, as you probably think too, Tracy, I, I often wonder, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, things called your theory of change, which really is like your model of how you think uh, this work is going to play out, right? Uh, you, you, you put all of your um, investment into one model, uh, but we all know that the world is not that predictable, mm -hmm. right? Wouldn't it be great to be able to think about multiple models, multiple scenarios and as an investor have more confidence in one versus another versus putting your eggs in one basket and i do think that artificial intelligence and machine learning on the good side gives us the uh at least is showing us the promise of being able to be more sophisticated in our analytical thinking in the upfront of course there's the con too to that in terms of thinking about you know, are we continuing to be extractive? Are we continuing to reinforce power dynamics um, uh, that we've seen in terms of the social unrest that we've experienced over the last year and over our history, really? Uh, and I think that being able to sit with an issue area and look at both the good and the bad, I hopefully as a philanthropic actor will allow us the ability to at least um, move in a direction that, um, that we, we get ahead of those conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, versus, you know, if you were to fast forward like 10 years from now versus being in a place where, you know, some of us have had access to these really cool, sophisticated tools, we're really far ahead and the gap between the have and the have nots have gotten bigger. Like that would be a very unfortunate result of all our excitement around data and technology. Well, and I think the other thing that I appreciate is that you're highlighting, it's a framework by which we approach things, right? And it's understanding that framework so that you're not evaluating like these many projects that they don't all connect together and you're wasting more money on the time and the resources spent on these separate projects that don't all add up to something, right? But it's the framework by which you're looking at things, not only from one single theory of change, but multiple theory of changes, so to speak. And I think it's understanding the flexibility in that, but also when uh, organizations talk about contingency planning and then they talk about strategy, it's accounting for the what ifs and it's ensuring that your frameworks, your systems, and your processes of your organization are able to adapt 
for those circumstances, even if you can't anticipate. So perfect example kind of coming full circle is with the pandemic and this virus, who would have thought it would have shut down the whole world at some point, right? Something that started in one country, how it could have spread at such a rapid rate to the point that all of us as a global community are grappling with it in different ways, but also the other aspect aside from the public policy and the health perspective is the impact economically that it's had too, right? I don't think anybody in our wildest dreams could have ever anticipated this or saw it in their crystal ball, right? But the organizations that were in some way more prepared because of their processes, their framework, the way in which their leaders or they were thinking about it and how they built that infrastructure is what has allowed some to adapt more easily, not saying that it was easy, but more easily than those that have not, right? And how can evaluation be that tool for that adaptation and for that change and use it as a change agent? And then there's the other side where you see organizations where they're so inundated with data and they're managing the machine of data and information that they've lost sight of what they're trying to use that data for and what are they really trying to measure or accomplish because they've gotten so um, well-versed in the infrastructure of either machine learning or AI or the technology, whatever it may be, what's shiny, what's new, right? And so how do you help those parties, you know, um, kind of come back to what I consider the foundation or the fundamentals to kind of revisit that. So I appreciate you kind of highlighting this um, world that we're living in, but sharing what you guys are doing at Rockefeller Foundation. And I know that a lot of people that are listening would love to partner and, and work with you guys to help collaborate and work together, right? Because I think in a time of right now, collaboration, partnership, and contribution is super important in terms of taking action but taking what I consider strategic action. So what are ways that individuals can get involved now that they've learned about what you're doing in your work specifically, but also for the foundation as a whole to help support what's going on? Sure, so uh, first and foremost, uh, please do be, uh, go to our website, www.rockground.org. Um, we have spent a good amount of time trying to create a more, uh, a different experience. Uh, and so uh, it's structured in a, a way that I think can give you information about what it is that you're looking for. Sign up for our newsletter. Uh, you, it's easy to do that. And um, that, I think, gives you the pulse on what it is that we're working on today, for example. And, and I would say um, one other thing is, and, you know, this is going to be interesting, but um, you know, our, we've been very focused on being more digitally oriented and more dynamic and more, as I mentioned, dialogical. Uh, you know, and we would really love to see engagement uh, at a social media level. Yeah, um, we put out things all the time. Uh, in fact, we much more so than any, uh, I think, administration, presidential administration at the Rockefeller Foundation, our current president really invests time in trying to access um, and trying to get the word out uh, in ways and shapes that um, no other president has. And I think that really what we're looking for now is engagement with people that are interested. We have structured our, our um, focus areas um, around the who's in our network, mm -hmm. right, directly because they're either a grantee or they're an investee um, or they're on our board or something, but they've got like a direct connection to us. And then we've been talking about like who's in our orbit and who's mm -hmm. curious about us, but it's really hard for us to know like who's curious about us. 
because uh, as a philanthropy, most people don't come to our websites or our Twitter or Instagram accounts and think, oh, I'm going to have a conversation. Yeah, they, they, they just come and they, um, it's very much descriptive and informative for them. And I really think that what we're yearning for is engagement in terms of listening to people. Um, and we can't listen if we're, if we're not able to hear. And so that, that is our current focus. Those are specific ways, I think. But I love how you highlight that because I think it's an easy way for people to embrace and get involved is if you're looking for engagement, people can come up with ideas for how they can engage with Rockefeller Foundation and vice versa to create that and help support you in that. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, Veronica. I really appreciate your time and sharing with us the phenomenal work that you guys are doing. And for those that are listening to be able to learn from you and learn from the organization, because I have no doubts that they have similar challenges and they're looking for, I think that solution provider or someone who they can collaborate with to better understand how to solve what we're going through. So really appreciate you sharing with our listeners today. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as The Mark USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.